Welcome to The Brave Table. I'm your host, Dr. Neetha Bhushan, and this is your oasis for strengthening your mental and emotional fitness, no matter what life tosses your way. I am so excited you're here. Just like you, I wear many hats. I'm a former dentist turned author and serial entrepreneur, currently a mom of two, and a recovering perfectionist. Every week, we'll navigate brave conversations to support your evolution at every season and stage of your life. Raw and unfiltered, we'll explore all the feels as we unpack life's unpredictable moments, from the playful to the painful, the magical and the messy, and everything in between this epic human experience. You ready? Let's dive in. Hello there, Brave Table fam. Welcome back to another episode of The Brave Table. I'm your host, Dr. Neetha, and today, boy, do we have a surprise for you. Any of you grew up listening to MTV, or I should actually say watching MTV. I remember like vividly, that was a jam. It was like MTV Cribs, Total Request Live, and it was like every single day. It was kind of like my... I mean, I grew up on Oprah as well, but like those two shows were like my daily and it was like religious because that's where you would get your playlists and your songs and you would like record the mixtapes. And this is just an incredible full circle to where we are today. We get to sit with the legendary Caduce. Very, very excited for you to experience him, his wisdom, his knack for vernacular communication. I mean, just how he shows up and his charisma and how he has just leaned into his intuition so much during so many different phases of his life. I won't say much because I want the interview to do all of the dropping of the golden gems that you are going to experience today. So without further ado, let's bring Caduce to the Brave Table. Brave Table fam, we've got quite the treat for you today. I don't normally do this, but because I have this legendary human here, I am going to read out his bio because (laughs) some of you may or may not know who he is. So Caduce Phillip is a TV host, producer, and the founder of The Creator Incubator, a mastermind dedicated to empowering creators to make a better impact. Caduce was recently featured in the hit Netflix documentary Genius for helping Kanye West get on MTV and acclaimed by Time Magazine as one of pop culture's foremost tastemakers. Caduce is also credited as the pioneer of new media for his early contributions with partners like MySpace, AOL, Yahoo, and YouTube. Caduce originally came to the international spotlight, replacing the OG Carson Daly on the iconic MTV show, Total Request Live. Yes, I know you all remember that very, very well. And his popularity on the network led to being nominated for Favorite TV Personality at the Teen Choice Awards, named by People Magazine as one of the sexiest men alive, and internationally acclaimed as the interviewer of choice for artists like Beyonce, legendary comedian Chris Rock, who said if Oprah and Ryan Seacrest had a love child, the kid would end up being like Caduce. After a mission trip to his father's homeland, Haiti, and a spiritual journey in Costa Rica, 
Caduce devoted himself to becoming a certified master coach and launching the Creator Incubator to provide the next wave of inspiring voices a place to develop their dream project. Top 100 podcaster Lewis Howes said Caduce's coaching made a huge difference in how I was able to build the School of Greatness. Caduce is currently based in Boulder, Colorado, and is writing his first book and is about to launch his first podcast. So, goodness gracious, that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> and I lived it. How does that happen? <laughs> wow. First of all, uh, legendary. I mean, I am beyond. I don't know if I have chills running down my spine because there was a time where I used to come home from my college courses <laughs> and watch you on TRL every single day after school. And I would make sure that I would watch it. So I feel like I grew up knowing you mm. and then you kind of disappeared. Yeah. As one does. As one does as when one, they reach an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> which I know we'll get into all of it today. And I'm just so honored for you to sit with us at the Brave Table. So welcome. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be here. It feels really good to hear one's life's work repeated back to them. <laughs> it's really lovely, actually. I recommend it for anyone listening. It's better than therapy. Oh. Doesn't it feel so good? I mean, wow, quite the astonishing uh, record there. It's interesting because half of those things, as I hear them back, when I was actually in the making of them, did not necessarily feel like history in the making. They felt like risky, bold, and sometimes stupid choices. Like I left MTV at the height of my success because I saw what was happening with the internet's rise. And I thought, hmm, let me see about going over to MySpace and see how I can develop artists. And I literally took myself off the biggest platform at the time because I saw the Titanic sinking. But it wow. didn't necessarily feel like something I could even qualify. It was almost an intuition at the time. But then obviously, mm. looking back, it's like, oh, I look like some sort of prophetic person who saw it all in 3D. <laughs> but I, I didn't. I, it was more of an intuition. Well, it, I mean, so, and it's crazy because, so for you to have that intuition at this, like, supreme, like, top of, like, you were at the mecca of all things entertainment. Mm. I mean, MTV was everything. And it was yeah. for our generation that grew up during that time. You were the Oprah of our generation. Wow. Wow. I don't know how Oprah would feel about that. She might want to look review my footage and see. I don't know. I mean, but and so for you to actually have that mic drop moment of like, all right, I'm just going to leave. I feel like we should probably even start there and then work mm. our way back and sure. make our way forward. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, that moment was not necessarily a mic drop in my mind. I did feel like I'd interviewed most of the artists I was actually curious to interview. I'd just been requested by Stevie Wonder to interview mm -hmm. him about three months prior to making the decision. And so I felt like, okay, wow. Stevie was was the biggest deal for me growing up. And so Huge. I felt like a level of satisfaction was starting to wash over me. And then a lack of fulfillment sort of came over me at that same juncture. And so I started to look around. And at the time, I was doing some behind-the-scenes work, consulting artists and supporting them to come up with more of their ideal creative vision. And then it started to get out that I was doing this type of A&R work, essentially. You know, mm. and, and MySpace Records came into the fold and I became a consultant over there and started developing artists with them. So it all ended up being something that I think was a indicator of what I would end up doing 
full time, which is developing humans. <laughs> right. <laughs> First <clears throat> true opportunity for me to develop people in that way. And so mm-hmm. facilitating things like Kanye getting on MTV for the first time is different than actually facilitating someone discovering their voice and mm-hmm. becoming like a Kanye and their level of expression. And so it's really beautiful to now look back at that opportunity with MySpace and say that was actually the first breadcrumb towards being the coach and advisor and mentor that I am now. And the level of fulfillment was was very distinct. I remember when I was mm. first signing my first artist at MySpace, actually the first artist I tried to sign was Drake. I was the first oh, no way. that brought him into a meeting. And so that didn't happen for multiple reasons. My A&R director, when he left the meeting, looked at me and he said, he seems like a white guy trying to be down. <laughs> Mind you, he's come, oh, Drake. A, yeah, oh he's come a long way, long way. I mean, at the time though, he was Jimmy and Degrassi High. Yeah. You know, he's like this wow. actor from Canada, you know, middle-class kid. He was like down with hip hop insofar as he was a fan of hip hop and starting to be able to actually rap. Right. But there was right. a lot, I think, that was probably going on in him that didn't feel altogether credible. And so little Wayne needed mm-hmm. to come into the picture and actually give him that credibility for him to have the kind of swagger that was actually convincing. But at the time he came oh my in my God. office, it was a different ballgame. He was trying really hard. So I actually understood my a <gasps> director's opinion about it. And I didn't feel like I could advocate for anything after that. <laughs> You're like, ah. It's like I could say, well, did you listen to the music enough? Because the music was strong. He was definitely dope already. Mm-hmm. That's why I brought him in. But... No, it was a lot. It was a lot of lessons in terms of not only how to develop talent, but also how to facilitate that talent getting those platforms where mm. it's a little less than obvious. I mean, getting Kanye on MTV yeah. was a different ball game than getting Drake on MySpace because there was a little bit more proven there. He had produced for Jay Z, get through the wire, mm-hmm. already hitting college radio, so I could substantiate yeah. the argument in a different way. But with Drake, it was like, well, he's got a mixtape, he's doing well in the MySpace charts, and I'm not sure how many people would go see him perform live. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's all so speculative, I think, actually, at that level. And so we speculated, obviously, in a way that didn't have us sign the biggest rapper of our generation at this point, arguably. Seriously. But, Seriously. You know, I think it was a big lesson for all of us, actually. I <laughs> Only oh a month gosh. after Drake started hitting radio, I remember bumping into my A&R director and he looked at me and he goes, you tell me so. <laughs> and I said, I sure did. <laughs> Oh, really? So it, it finally came back? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was no, no, like, was, oh, it's... man, we should have signed Drake. Well, but the thing is, that I don't look at it that way. Like, it's easy to look in the rearview mirror and say, what it could have, should have. But I think it all happened perfectly. I think when I look at the big picture, like if I'm taking myself out of the equation and mm-hmm. selfishly, of course, I would have loved to have been known as the guy that signed Drake and have all the life that comes with being that guy. But at the same time, would that have been the best thing for Drake? I don't think so. I don't think so. Given our infrastructure at the time, what we had right. at MySpace and what we didn't have, which is a guy like Lil Wayne to really come through and yeah. put a stamp on him. I don't think Lil Wayne would have put his stamp on Drake if he didn't have a piece of his check. So uh-huh. it all worked out for Drake and ultimately for me too, because I don't think I wanted to really be in the industry that much longer anyway. And that's what happened. Well, and I want to pause you there for a second because I kind of even want to go... This is a great like segue into... Were you always this driven to be in entertainment? And how did that whole MTV time fall into your lap? Like, where did you grow up? (laughs) And how did Caduce become Caduce? Mm, Well, I did always love music. And that was the thing that 
I remember when I didn't really get playing time on the basketball team in high school because I wasn't really that athletic. I remember okay. thinking, gosh, I want to add value somehow. I don't want to just ride the bench all damn season. So I actually took my passion for music and started making mixtapes for the team to warm up to. And oh I remember my gosh. So remember fun. the time where we had yeah. to like, you know, record the songs on the actual like radio yep, to create yep, a mixtape. Yep, yep. Yep. So I would be that guy. I put together mixtapes and I would play them before the games and everybody have that much more energy to come into the game with. And I had so much fun putting together mixtapes. And that was the birth of me as a DJ. So it's interesting to look back and say, wow, if I had been the athlete. Athlete and the performer on the basketball court, I probably wouldn't have developed myself as a DJ, which then led to me hearing about this much music VJ search up in Canada, which is our version of MTV up in Canada's network called okay. Much Music. I grew up on Much Music. And then oh, when that okay. VJ search was announced that they were looking for a new host for the network, everyone in my life seemed to recommend that I go ahead and submit a demo reel. And so my brother was the one who really tipped the scales on that. He said, listen, if you don't, put a demo reel into this audition thing. I will never talk to you again. No, he, he was basically just saying, <laughs> this is perfect for you. You love music. You talk about it so passionately. It's clearly a thing for you. So anyway, I submitted an audition tape and then I got chosen as a finalist. They flew me to Toronto and I did a live audition with six other people who were also finalists. And I was the runner up. I didn't mm. win. I was the guy, like, you know, on American Idol, the person oh, who yeah. it's all the way to the end and then they lose Ooh. and then they do their face like dropping oh, to the floor. Yeah. I was that guy. So but yeah. it was interesting because at the same time as I was feeling that disappointment, I was also intuitively clear that this wasn't the end of the road for my dream mm -hmm. to facilitate people hearing music that could inspire them. That was really the spark. That was the seed of all of this. And so... That was uh, almost the catalyst. It was. You. It totally was. So it's like when I look back, you know, hindsight being 2020, my failure as a basketball player worked. My failure in that VJ search worked because ultimately then yep. another network came along and they were developing a show. It was like the young 60 minutes and they needed a co-host. And so they hired me and that was my first proper job in TV, which is called Vox, which is Latin for voice. And so that was, mm -hmm. I started to really develop my voice as a host. And then a friend of mine from back home in Canada and Ottawa. His name's Ben Barry. He happened to be watching my ascent, you know, from the VJ search to the show Vox. And then he thought, let me put together something or ask Caduce to put together something to then send to my aunt, who is a mm. senior agent at the William Morris Agency at the time. And she was okay. representing Whitney Houston and all sorts of big stars. So Ben decides to basically represent me to his aunt. And so he sends his aunt the senior agent at William Morris, my demo reel oh my from what I did the VJ search and as a campus radio DJ before that, and that was my little stint in, in university. No way. So yeah. you were constantly like preparing yourself for this moment. Seems yeah, like. in a way. Yeah. Looking back on it, it all really synced up because I did develop myself in all the ways I needed to. And the road was definitely winding because I definitely felt like nothing was certain. I mean, I was a mm -hmm. kid in Canada and sort of think that I could do the things I ended up doing. I did not necessarily think it was going to eventuate into that kind of a job. But anyway, Ben got this DVD in front of his aunt and she treated it like a coaster for the first couple of months. It was too busy <laughs> brokering million dollar deals to even pay attention to it. But God bless Ben because he kept nagging his aunt to watch, watch my friend's demo reel. He's talented. You probably wow. like him. 
Finally, she watches it and she's saying, okay, wow, he's got some talent. So next time he's in New York, I'll set him up with a junior agent there. And sure enough, that's what happened because I was modeling at the time and I went down to New York on a modeling job. And then while I was there, yeah. I got to meet with a junior agent at William Morris. And that agent, his name's Kenny Goodman. He, after five minutes of meeting with me, said, you would be perfect for MTV. Let me call somebody over there. Literally, while mm-hmm. I'm still in his office, calls the talent development guy over there that he knows, a guy named Scott Venner, who's now known as the Broke Mogul. He does a show uh, oh. called uh, Other Tone with Pharrell, actually. So he's oh, like interesting. a purveyor of culture for a very long time. He's also a music supervisor for Entourage and was one of the main guys that made that show cool. And so yeah. Scott Venner then gets that call from Kenny Goodman that day. And he happened to have a spot in a schedule the next day. And so I went in for a meeting with Scott the next day. And as nervous as could be, as I was walking into that building, I turned that energy into excitement because I realized, oh, wow, I have dry mouth. I'm nervous. I could Mm -hmm. just implode right now or I could just Mm -hmm. explode with excitement because I think they're actually very similar sensations in the body, you know, anxiety and nervousness, uh, quote unquote, or excitement. So I just decided to channel it into excitement. And I just, Mm. time he asked me a question, decided to just be all of that excitement. And he actually had a poker face on pretty much the entire meeting. I couldn't tell at all how I was doing. But at one point he asked me a question. He goes, so why do you want to be a VJ on MTV? And I said, well, I can't sing like Maxwell. So this is the next best thing. And so he laughed a little bit. And that was the <laughs> only time I thought I might be doing okay. Everything You're was, like, I broke him. <laughs> yeah, totally. The poker face just gave a little bit of a give, but ultimately that was enough. And so I walked away from that meeting thinking I tanked it and didn't get the job. But then two days later, back in Canada, I'm in my bedroom in downtown Toronto. I get the call from Kenny and he says, you got the job. They want you. Whoa. That changed my life. And it's crazy because they weren't even looking for a VJ at the time. But my tape made it around the building and they were like, let's figure out a way to make this guy a VJ. And so they did. So they <laughs> flew me down to Key West, Florida and I had my first experience as a VJ on MTV. That's oh all. my gosh. Well, what was going through your mind and your your head at this point? Because I'm sure there was probably a lot of time in between when your friend was like, nagging his aunt, had you already forgotten about it? Or were you kind of just like, all right, I'm just going to surrender this, but then do other things? Yeah, I was just focused on hosting Vox. And that show Mm -hmm. was really fulfilling. I was also one of the writers. So I was able to get creative. And I really felt like that was a sweet show. I really look back on that with so much gratitude. I remember my producer, Maria Ferrano, is a wonderful woman. I remember being so nervous for one of our shoots. We were in an alleyway in downtown Toronto and I had a very simple introduction to a segment to do. But there I was in front of the camera, stumbling on my words over and over again. I think we must have done like 60 takes that day. And God bless her. She was so compassionate and loving and supportive and encouraging of me regardless of how I was stumbling. And so those kind of nurturing moments made me feel like I'm exactly where I need to be. I have a support system here that really cares about me. And it was perfect for me. So I wasn't really too, too antsy about the next step because I felt Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is okay. This is, you know, a very substantial, cool show that I feel proud about. Uh, But then obviously when it all happened with MTV, it was very clear what the level up for me would be. And even still, though, it's interesting because I did have a lot of performance anxiety when I first got mm-hmm. there. And I was seeing Carson Daly and you know, sitting on his throne seemed like the biggest thing. And so it was really tough for me to get over my imposter syndrome and really feel like I was worthy of that because it was like mm-hmm. a quantum leap. You know, nobody had ever seen it's a huge Canadian quantum leap. It's wild. It's wild. It was wild. Uh, and you were, out- can, you were a Canadian and yeah. coming into an environment where the chances of them picking 
a Canadian BJ or like slim. Yeah, 100%. And what did you attribute all of that to? Was it something in your upbringing or your parents that were like mantras given or kind of motivational talks that you encountered? Were you as spiritual then as you are now? Well, it's interesting. I grew up with a dad who was very Catholic, very, 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 very Catholic. He would you know, basically thump me over the head with the Bible as much as he possibly could. And so I would say that that was a little less than inspirational, but... His work ethic is something that stayed with me. It truly... His passion around his work was definitely a very, very high bar and a standard that by osmosis, obviously being around the house with him, seeing his level of passion for his work definitely rubbed off on me. And I think that was a huge part in what happened there. And then also my mom, she was very passionate about music. She would play great music around the house. Whenever we'd go to her mother's place, my grandmother, uh, she had the best music. She would play Van Morrison and Bob Marley. Oh my gosh. And, it was, and she was the best host. And so those qualities definitely stuck to my ribs. And my mom was really encouraging. Both my parents actually were really encouraging and gave me a possibilitarian mindset, truly. Mm -hmm. Like to see my Haitian immigrant father operating in Canada as a dentist is one your, thing. Your dad was a dentist? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. He just you know, recently... My, my last life was a dentist, actually. Oh, wow, wow. Cosmetic dentist. Wow, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's not the easiest thing to get into. It takes quite, uh, quite a bit of commitment to get there, as you know. So my father was that guy. And the fact is, when my parents met in Haiti, my mom was down there to build a school. And oh, wow. it so happens that she was coordinating with the Baha'i center there in Haiti. She was a Baha'i at the time, called them ahead of time to say, listen, I want to build a school. Can you facilitate some connections there for me on the grounds? And I'll be flying in this day. And my dad happened to be walking by the Baha'i center and he was taking an interest in the Baha'i center, kind of mm. deviating a little bit from his Catholic childhood. And <laughs> yeah. overheard that a Canadian woman was coming into town and needed a ride from the airport. And he raised oh his hand God. like, I'll well, pick her up. And they fell in love or, or they thought they fell in love and then they divorced about 15 years later. <laughs> but that being said, it was really something to be able to grow up around two very different types of people. You know, a woman mm -hmm. from Canada, a man from Haiti. And those are very divergent cultures. You know, Haitians got a scrap for everything they eat. And meanwhile, yep. Canadians have a bit more of that sort of developed uh, air about them. And so being able to be privy to both those types of worlds in my oh, childhood yeah. was great. It gave me real appreciation for diversity, for sure. And for I was square sure. in the middle of it. And uh, so it, it was great development in, insofar as like really appreciating the scope of humanity and really how to relate to a lot of different people. Yeah. And I mean, not to mention the Baha'i faith is all encompassing. So was that, mm -hmm. was your mom's um, love of the Baha'i faith, was that kind of transferred over to you and your upbringing growing up? Well, besides the name Caduce, which is derived from the Baha'i faith, but Caduce was one of the first followers of Baha'u'llah. So he was like the first guy oh, at the party. <laughs> and he was. so, yeah. What, yeah, is, what it, does your name Caduce mean? It means a man of peace. And, and some people mm. refer to it as the holiest man. So either way, it's a lot to live up to. <laughs> That's a lot. The holiest yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. So, so my mom was the one responsible for that as my middle name, actually. She was the one who named me Caduce. And then my dad, being the biblical guy that he was, named me Benjamin. Good old Bible name. And <laughs> yeah. so Benjamin Caduce Philippe is actually my full name. And so anyway, that background definitely helped in some ways. I think that it was also a case on the deeper level that my dad wasn't 
altogether around so much. And I remember, I think on some level making up that I needed to prove my worth because he wasn't around. And so basically that planted a seed of feeling like I really needed to achieve extraordinary things in order to matter to my dad. And mm. also simultaneously feeling like I could make a contribution to society and not necessarily go to church because I was really turned off of the way that the dogma was affecting our relationship, yeah. certainly. And like the control that felt like was a part mm -hmm. of his relationship with me going to the church. And I remember we had a big falling out when I was about 17 years old. And that's actually when I took on the name Caduce. And so it was an homage yeah. to my mom being way more present day to day. And my dad mm -hmm. admitted this to me years ago, actually, I could probably cry because he did mm -hmm. actually make a point of saying, I wish I was around more and I'm sorry I wasn't there for mm -hmm. present for you. So, so we've cleaned up mm -hmm. our relationship quite a bit over the years. But at the time, it was definitely something where I think subconsciously it was like, I'm going to achieve incredible things so that I am worthy of my dad's love. I think subconsciously, I think it's a lot, mm -hmm. what a lot of people who don't have their parent around on some level probably make up. It's been interesting though, like to look back at yeah. that and say, wow, I did have this insane amount of drive and some mm -hmm. of it was healthy. Some of it was not, you know? Yeah. Especially looking, you know, kind of at the trajectory of your career and a lot of the things that you were able to do and in, in interview like the top talent and artists of our time mm -hmm. and to be known who you were known as. So take us through then kind of like fast forward to that moment where you're kind of like, all right, I'm done. And mm -hmm. I need to walk away from all of this. Was this again, I know you were saying initially, like it was part of that intuitive hit. Was it just yeah. like after an instant, what kind of led you to those decisions? Well, I talked about this moment with Kanye on my TED Talk where basically after a couple of years of being friends and me putting him on MTV, there was a moment on air where basically to summarize it, you can watch the TED Talk if you want to hear all the blow by blow. Yes, on it, but I will put the TED Talk in the show notes for sure. <laughs> but that was a moment that really disturbing. It like was deeply disturbing to experience such a miscommunication and to feel like my friend was no longer my friend after what happened live on television on account of some of that miscommunication. And so it put me into a real big question around what exactly were we doing as media? Mm -hmm. What exactly mm -hmm. were we doing? Were we being exploitative and trying to get clicks more than actually impact culture in a positive way? And so it became that deep for me, even though now I look back on it, it wasn't really that serious. I could have definitely isolated that incident. But it was part of a bigger picture for me where I did experience the kind of culture that was not necessarily altogether what I thought it would be. You know, mm. when I look back, I see that there was a moment when I was walking through the halls one day on the way to rehearsing TRL and one of my producers pulled me aside because that day I decided to blow out my Afro and Ooh. truly have pro-black look for the first mm -hmm. time. Like I'd had this very accessible curly hair up until that particular day. But that day I decided I'd like Quest Love, blow out my Afro yeah. and like really yeah, just rock that. I remember and Quest Love. So this particular producer pulled me aside and he asked me, do you think that's a little bit too black? for the show and oh, for wow. you. And I didn't even know how to respond to him. I was shocked that he would even say that. And so I remember on some level being really impacted by that and wondering, who am I working for? Yeah. This was an executive producer of Total Request Live at the time. Like, who am I working for? What's going on here, really? Like, am I basically just a house nigga? Mm. <laughs> 
Like for anyone who knows, you know, the issues of America and slavery and the dynamics, you know, back in the day, it would be the darker skinned would be out there picking cotton in the hot sun. And then the lighter skin would be in the house and serving tea and have a little bit more comfort. And there I was Mm -hmm. feeling like a house nigga. Mm -hmm. And ultimately all the executives at MTV were white men. And yet somehow the culture that was actually creating the interest in the network was all driven by brown people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So these are these are all the things that led me to just feeling a little disenchanted and a little bit less than fulfilled and a little less than empowered. And of course, you know, I'm not a victim to it, but at the same time, it's like, do I really want to continue in that building where I don't really feel like I belong, actually? Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of things that I think were actually subconscious. Like if you'd asked me at the time, I would have probably just chalked it up to, eh, I'm just not feeling it. Right. I don't know if I could have articulated it at the time, but now looking back on it, it makes a lot of sense. Wow. Wow. And I think that, you know, for you to articulate it in that way, so metaphorically for everybody to understand, it's so poignant to what's been happening over the Mm -hmm. last few years. Now you have this second chapter Mm. of life and Mm. even the second chapter of everything that you're building with your coaching programs and now Mm. even creating this next generation of new artists Mm -hmm. in many ways and coaching them. What do you see now, you know, that's happening with social media? Mm. Because I feel like you kind of ended that first part of your career right before, you know, social media really took on. And Mm. now it's kind of that different world, you know, like MTV is now like YouTube, right? Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. how does that land with you in that way? Well, the whole power structure has changed. The whole power structure Mm -hmm. of media has changed as we know it. I mean, there's still a lot to be said about the corporate leverage that happens with a place like Netflix, for example, now being at the top of the media empire, where there's still quite a bit of that top 5% power structure. And then everybody else needs to sort of play around it. But I would say that social media has provided such a powerful way for people to rise up regardless of being acknowledged by the corporate power structure. And in fact, Mm -hmm. in some ways, they're a little bit more nimble. Like the creator Mm -hmm. has a bit more of that cultural competency because they're more in the trenches with the people that they actually serve. And so it's just really dynamic to see that leverage point is not quite what it used to be. It used to be that you'd need a gatekeeper to basically co-sign your talent and give you some position at one of these networks. And now you can create your own position. If you're determined enough, if you have a voice that cuts through the noise, then you can make your own platform. You don't have to wait for any network to give you any sort of power. So that's a really exciting thing. And then, of course, you know, corporate money ends up coming around when you have enough of a platform, and then you get to decide. So it's really exciting mm-hmm. to see that there's tools for empowerment now as a creator, no matter where you are in your journey, and you don't have to wait for anybody. Mm-hmm. And what is your advice to young people now that, you know, it's like we all kind of live and breathe on social media and what kind of agency and even decision making? Because I hear the through line, even in your theme of just who you evolved into as mm-hmm. really trusting your intuition. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Wow. Well, I would say intuition is very, very important to develop that relationship. And however you get there, 
is however you get there. I think some people could chalk it up to a gut feeling about something and trusting that. Some people could look at a higher power and understand it from a more spiritual lens. But however you get there, I think it's really imperative that people find what I call their center of gravity. Because there's a lot of moments throughout the day as a creator where you're going to be faced with a lot of choice points where you can essentially sell out moment to moment. There's always going to be the pull to be part of a trend rather than be in your truth. And so it's ever more imperative for people to really understand like, what is my truth? What is actually my authentic voice? Because it's so easy to get caught up in the rat race of it all, you know, chasing likes and clicks. And so, you know, I always say, if you're chasing views over your values, ultimately it's going to be a losing game. And so I think it's really important for creators to be very clear about what their values are, what their vision is, and how that interfaces with the marketplace is going to be the defining thing. And so if someone feels like they're giving up their power on some level, that's one of the indicators that you are not in your authentic voice. But if you're sitting in your seat, like what I call the seat of the soul, then your voice is going to have a completely different treble and bass, as I like to say. And so if you think about like whatever you create content as a product, you want to think about how any good product is developed. It's developed with a lot of love and care. But I don't think that most creators even think about it like that. Most people are just trying to keep up with the trends on TikTok versus mm-hmm. actually sitting and pausing and thinking, huh, is this actually an extension of my greatest possibility here? These are questions most people don't ask themselves. They just think, what's going to get me some more views? And that's why so many people end up sounding like so many other people. And there's only one you. Like whoever's listening right now wants you to know there's no, only one you. This, to, be, to think that you need to be the next Gary Vee is to actually give away your power. So true. So true. I mean, we need to be talking more about this. Like since when were trends the thing that every single person does, right? And get validated on now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, listen, there's something to be said about working with the medium and working with the algorithm, but to the point where you actually sell out on what your authenticity is. You can fit your authenticity into a reel on Instagram. You can make it work for you. But the trick is actually designing for that, making sure that you're actually optimizing for your authentic voice to be in whatever medium is working best at the time, but not selling out in the process. Mm. So good. So good. (laughs) As we move into our next little igniting round before we have you jump off for today, because this is too juicy. (laughs) What do you define as being brave at this stage of life? Uh, I would define being brave as being willing to have uncomfortable conversations, Mm -hmm. especially with the people that matter the most to you. And Mm -hmm. especially when every part of you doesn't want to have it, but you know you need to have it in order to actually have a breakthrough happen. I always think that there's something to be said about a breakthrough being just a conversation away. I think some Mm -hmm. people overcomplicate what it means to actually have breakthrough moments and they think that it's magic or they need somebody else to somehow engineer it or whatever it is. I I just think that sometimes our anxiety in life is a direct representation of the lack of willingness to have uncomfortable conversations. So Yeah, and it's also um, even that fear of like the lack of confrontation or the way that they were growing up that they didn't want to like displease people, you know, yeah. so that they'd rather not say anything. 
Yep. Because then they're not going to ruffle any feathers, you know? Totally. So Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you know, it's like on the other side of that discomfort is truth. It's actually having mm-hmm. a clean space. You know, if there's something that is left unsaid in a relationship, it's going to be like a pebble in the shoe of both of your souls until you have that communication happen, you know? Mm. So many gems that you're just dropping left, right, and center <laughs> I'm gl- here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I came to play. <laughs> you're on a roll. Okay. So next question, what's a practice or a ritual or a book that's elevating you lately? Ooh. Elevating me right now. I would say reading Shoe Dog by Phil Knight has been very helpful because for me, reading Surrender Experiment was one thing. Oh, that was good. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like the the one-two punch to read that alongside Shoe Dog. Because when I got divorced a couple of years ago, I felt like I was very much in a surrender experiment. And Mm -hmm. anyone who's been through divorce can probably relate. It's a very disorienting thing to be on the other side of it and wonder, okay, if that didn't work, who am I now? And all of that led me to reading the surrender experiment very slowly for an entire year. And then I started for an entire year. Yeah. I like chipped away at it, like just one page at a time, like savoring it to really absorb what was going on there. As I was also in the pandemic when it just started like I, I got divorced at the end of 2019. And so oh basically gosh, like so three right. months later, we were all in the pandemic. So yeah, to, oof, to have that all happening. And so the surrender experiment was amazing. And then reading Shoe Dog as it pertained to thinking through, okay, what now? Because we also, my ex-wife and I were running a program together and that was my main focus at the time. So then it was like a void to fill with that. And so, okay, that's not it anymore. What is? And iterating all the way to the creator incubator has been one of the greatest gifts. So now I feel like you know, I've got my my dharma locked. But it took me a while. It took a lot of reading books like that to really feel like I could just continue to surrender and just let go of what that was with my ex and let go of what we had built together because I just decided I wanted to make the divorce as easy as possible and give her what we built and not squabble over it. And so left me with a big void to fill. So those books were really amazing. Very helpful. Wow. Well, congratulations on being part of the first marriage club. (laughs) You know exactly what that's like. Very humbling. Very humble. Humble (laughs) group of people. If we got the the lesson, we're humble. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So where are you at now in the journey of divorce? You know, I wish I could put a nice bow on it, but it's uh, very, very unresolved. I think between her and I, I can barely get her on the phone. And so it's something that is certainly not finished and a process of constantly forgiving myself because... I don't hold her at all responsible for what happened. I completely take all the responsibility. It was a blind spot that I lived into and she had to pay the price. And so it sucks. It sucks. And no matter how I try to apologize, it's it's not enough to fill the hurt. And so that's where we are. And so unfortunately, but maybe fortunately that is the case because I know one thing's for sure, the biggest breakthrough for me was eradicating my people pleaser. Mm. You know, truly, I self-abandoned. And that's really what happened. And that's no slight on her at all, at all. It's Mm. about how I was and what I wasn't able to identify myself in such a way where I was completely clear going into the relationship, going into the marriage, all of that. 
So now on this side of it, I realized, oh, wow, I was just living into her dream and completely Mm -hmm. abandoning mine in the process. So it, it was a really big moment of reckoning for me and certainly a lot of humble pie, but thank God I've digested it. And so humble pie is delicious when you digest it. It's really delicious. And then, yeah. And then maybe you might have to go to the bathroom, but hey, that's besides the <laughs> Many point. Many times, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yes. It sure is a humbling experience. And I feel like, you know, through that process, for you to just be able to have the wisdom of even that personal responsibility because it's so easy for us going through the process to, you know, not take, you know, ownership of our part. Mm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of that work and that healing. And it seems like beautiful and magical and messy and imperfect Mm -hmm. all at the same time. It's a great way to put it. It truly is. There's nothing quite like being human. You know, I I think about this idea of like being a spiritual being, but being a human in that experience, like really honoring what it means to be human, having a dichotomy of thinking, like one day feeling like this and then the next day feeling like this and trying to reconcile all that. It's a beautiful thing. It's like, we're all of it. We're all of it. We're we're what we choose to be in any given moment. Yeah. Somebody the other day told me, it's like, it's all true. The good, (laughs) the bad, the ugly, the everything. It's all true. And it's beautiful. And I know you're starting a podcast. How how do you transition from that, right? Like, (laughs) I love your attempt to transition from like the deepest dive. Like, oh, we're just going to transition from divorce. Someone, Someone somewhere is listening to this like, oh my God, I need a cigarette and a whiskey. Can you hold on? Don't transition yet. We can sit, we can sit in the, in the stillness of that because that was big. And... Um, there's two other things that I do want to, want to bring up <laughs> sure, so before, sure. before I let you go. Uh, wow. You have a podcast coming mm. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's tell, very exciting. Tell us well, about so it. This is, this is a labor of love. This is a passion project if there ever was one, because basically I was in the middle of the pandemic, like all of us wondering what to do at this time. And I thought, okay, this might be the moment to go deeper and create the show that I've always had on my heart to create, but never quite had the medium. But then podcasting comes along and it's this rich medium where we can actually Mm -hmm. go as deep as we have today, for example. And so it really piqued my interest. I actually helped some pretty big podcasters to develop what they have. As you mentioned, Lewis is someone who I helped very early on before he had a podcast. I helped with a video that really turn the corner on his vulnerability, his ability to get on a mic and really be all of himself. So it was one of those things that like was the first breadcrumb and what became a real interest in podcasting. And so I've helped a lot of other podcasters since and been that guy behind the scenes and, you know, really taken a love into the medium. And so finally I decided, okay, I'm going to jump in here. I was coming off my divorce though. So here I was like fresh off a divorce, (laughs) getting right back into production. I remember the first you person I, well, so I, I interviewed Karamo Brown as my first interview and I, I love him. He's so gracious oh. with me. I still haven't released this conversation. And so like two years later, it's like all these different conversations from over the pandemic. No, but I'm still in development. That's the beautiful thing is like I'm giving myself time because I know that this podcast is something I want to have be really sustainable and really be a representation of, you know, all the people that I have talked with and that I will talk with and so it's it's tricky, you know, and, I, and I'm a recovering perfectionist too. I'll admit that. And it's one of those things I've just been yeah. like in the lab, in the lab, refining, refining. But part of it's just See been like a healing journey, honestly. 
Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's that constant ebb and flow from former recovering perfectionists too. So, so I see you and I feel like for everybody that's listening, that's going to want to know more in depth of like all of the wisdom that you're constantly dropping. I feel (laughs) like, well, Caduce is finally coming out with his podcast. So we'll link that definitely in the show notes. No pressure, Q, no pressure. You don't need to drop (laughs) that kind of, I'm already putting up pressure myself. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now we're holding you to it. It's yeah, totally. It's good. We need accountability, don't we? And on that note, one word that describes this season of life. Oof, coming home. I know it's two words, but you know, sometimes we got to give yeah. ourselves permission. Ooh, that's the better word for this season. Permission. I'm giving myself permission. Ooh, that's the word. Go. Yep, that's good. Mm, that's good. Wow. <laughs> what about you? Wow. What's your word this season? <sighs> I would say expansion. Mm. expansion my my next book is coming out soon Uh, this has been such a labor of love as you know Mm -hmm. doing shows and producing and and having amazing conversations with you so i would say definitely expansion nice nice can't wait to see all of it unfold oh all right fam produce on the brave table thank you so much Uh, for joining and giving your all and where can we reach, learn more about you, work with you at the incubator? Tell us all the juicy. Yeah, come to the website. It's caduce.co. So Q-U-D-D-U-S dot C-O. And you'll find it all there. I'm on Instagram. I'm kind of feeling a way about Instagram right now. Though. I'm like, am I really putting more money in Zuckerberg's pocket? <laughs> That's why they need to listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's all deal with this existential crisis known as social media right now. <laughs> uh, so good. Thank you so much for tuning in. And Caduce, you're a gem. It's been such an honor to uh, sit with you here. Uh, Until next time on The Brave Table. I mean, can we all just be a little bit more brave? like Caduce. I mean, the way that he just trusts his intuition and knowing the power of uncomfortable conversations. And I feel like he's just one of those incredible souls that has so much to say, so much to offer. And for those of you who are curious about activating that in yourself, or maybe you want to just learn more about how you can work with Caduce, in all of the things that he has going on, go ahead and visit Caduce, Q-U-D-D-U-S dot co for more on his upcoming book, his podcast. And of course, you can connect with him on Instagram. That's where he is. That's where he lives. Q-U-D-D-U-S on IG. And if you want to dive deeper, I've linked his amazing TED Talk and his behind-the-scenes look of actually what happened with him and Kanye. It's on YouTube, and I've linked it below, as well as he's got a podcast coming up, so he's going to be revealing that on his website. So you can sign up for his newsletter, and you will be the first to know when his show launches. And it's definitely one we'll actually have him come back when he's finally launched. But I am so, so excited for all of you listening to this and really how to trust your intuition just a little bit more. If you want to learn more on how to do that, I've linked a couple more episodes in the show notes. And of course, how to embrace the duality of emotions when we're going through transitions as Caduce 
shared throughout this episode. Oof, so, so juicy. Now, if you've got a friend, colleague, coworker that needs to hear this, go ahead and share this episode with them. And if you really enjoyed this episode, I mean, go ahead and give us a shout out on the interweb, specifically Spotify and iTunes. We would so love your five-star review. And when you submit that, don't forget to send us your screenshots so that we can reward you with our very free course, Seven Day Emotional Mastery. That's right, just for you when you send us your review. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a beautiful day, beautiful evening, beautiful week, and don't forget to be just a little bit more brave.